If you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, we're going to be in verse 27 to 44. Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 to 44. I think about you guys during the week as I'm writing this sermon, looking at God's word, I'm thinking about you and I'm thinking about your Monday and I'm thinking, what do you need on Monday during the week and not just now? And I'm struck repeatedly at how often the Bible doesn't give you top tips for getting through Monday and we don't have that in this passage today. But I'm also reminded of this phrase, it's a well-known phrase in Nehemiah, for for a long time misunderstood, I think, by me. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, you see, because I think of the word of so often in a possessive sense, I think of it in a sense like the Lord's joy, he's happy, and that will be my strength. And I just struggle to think, how does that, what, what's going on there? How does that work? But I think what's going on there is actually, of is a funny word. And I think what, what's meant by the joy of the Lord is your strength, is that your strength, your joy is him that he is yours and you are his. The joy of belonging to the Lord, the joy of seeing who he is, that is your strength and that is our strength for Monday. That's what we need for Monday, to know the Lord, to see him, to know that we are his and that he is ours. And so let's look in Matthew chapter 27 together. And let's look at the Lord Jesus. Let's gaze upon his beauty. Because that's what we have to offer this morning. I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. Father, by the power of your spirit, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts. We need you, God. We pray that you would give us spiritual insight and understanding. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us now, we pray. For your name's sake. Amen. So let's read it together. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. 
and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gal, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right hand and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. <clears throat> so where we're going to go is we're going to look firstly, I think what Matthew wants us to see is he wants us to see the shame bearing that Jesus undergoes, the scorn, the mocking. We're going to look firstly at that and then we're going to move and we're going to look at the folly and blindness of sin over against the wisdom, the marvellous wisdom of God. So first of all, let's, let's go back and, and think about the way Matthew draws out the mocking of Jesus. I'll just flag up a few verses and show that this, is a, this I think, is a, ma- a key thing that, that Matthew wants to bring out. In verse 29, we have the word mocked. In verse 31, again, mocked. In verse 39, they hurled insults. In verse 41, again, mocked. In verse 44, heaped insults. As we go in and have a look at the content of what this insult and this reproach looks like, I want us to just start in verse 26 and notice there, just set ourselves in context a little bit. You see here it says, then he released, this is, this is Pilate, so Jesus has, Jesus has been handed over by Judas to, uh, to the Romans. They have tried him. Uh, he's been found innocent, really, but the crowd have decided that they want the uh, criminal Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. And they want Jesus to be crucified. 
and, and uh, the Roman governor Pilate has handed Jesus over uh, to the soldiers and he's away, Jesus is away now. He's off to the cross to be crucified. And look in verse 26. So what had happened was, I just want us to see here that Jesus has been flogged before uh, the, the before what we've just read about the soldiers gathering around him. Jesus has been flogged. I'm just going to read what one commentator says about that flogging. Among the Jews, scourging was limited to 40 lashes. But the Romans were restricted by nothing but their strength and whim. The whip was the dreaded flagellum, made by plaiting pieces of bone or lead into leather thongs. The victim was stripped and tied to a post. Severe flogging not only reduced the flesh to bloody pulp, but could open up the body until the bones were visible and the entrails exposed. Flogging as an independent punishment not infrequently ended in death. It was also used to weaken the prisoner before crucifixion. Jesus' flogging took place before the verdict and so was not repeated after the verdict. Repetition would doubtless have killed him. That's just to help us get a picture of what Jesus has already undergone and the state of his body as he is then taken into the praetorium, the soldiers they gather around him, and you just imagine the intimidation of all of these soldiers around you. They then twist a crown of thorns, they stick it on his head, take off one of their red robes, take off his clothes, strip him naked, put a, one of their robes on him, put a staff in his hand. He, mind you, he is the king, right? Let's not forget that. They, they kneel down before him and their cutting words come out as a taunt to him. Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him. Spitting doesn't really need an explanation as to how degrading spitting is. Spitting on him. They are beating him on the head with the, with the staff. Striking him again and again on the head, it says in verse 30. Matthew wants us to get a sense of the shame, the mocking, what Jesus is undergoing here. You imagine him there, and they are around him. Playing sport with him. But it doesn't end there for Jesus. They lead him away, up the, up the hill. They crucify him. They hang him up on display. He may be naked. He may just have a loincloth. 
Then come the people passing by. Look what they say in verse 39 and 40. They pass by and they are hurling insults at him. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. The elders and the chief priests, everybody's around him. He saved others. He can't save himself. And they taunt him about his relationship with God. He trusts in God, does he? They're basically saying, oh, I, I, I see that you trust in God, but obviously God doesn't look favorably upon you, does he? Let God come down and save him now if he delights in him. Where's your God now? Can you imagine being Jesus? Have you ever felt mocked or taunted? What about by somebody who you know doesn't know what they're talking about? And there's that sense of you thinking, (coughs) sorry, are you mocking me about this? Can you imagine Jesus with the soldiers? Right? These guys are people that answer to kings. Jesus is the king of kings. Right? Can you imagine? I I mean, for myself, I could just feel it it, (laughs) raging inside of me. There's a sense of there's injustice here. Do you not see how absurd this is? How insanely wrong this is. I am the king. I am the king. You've put a crown of thorns on my head. You are spitting on me and hitting me and mocking me and saying, pretending like I'm not a king. Really? It's like the fool whacking a lion, thinking it's a plastic lion. And everybody else thinking, what is he doing? And he's thinking, look at him, bite me. Bet you can't bite me. It's a real lion. That lion could jump up and pow. Just like that. Jesus has just told us in Uh, a a little bit earlier, before he's getting arrested, he says, put your sword away. Don't you know that I can can ask my father and he will put at my disposal more than 60,000 angels? It's not a case that I'm here, you know, being undone. This is extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And you see, part of the mocking that came from the passers-by was that among the Jewish expectation was that the Messiah would come with extraordinary displays of power. 
Isn't it ironic that little do they know, they are witnessing an extraordinary display of power. That little do they know, they are witnessing a different kind of power. It's less of an awe-struck power and more of a when you see it, your heart melts because you can't handle the type of power that's on display. Such strength displayed in such meekness and humility. I think my desire in that, for me, in that, if I was in Jesus in that point, it would be to vindicate myself. I'd do that, I'd, I'd do that on little things petty little things ready to vindicate myself how much scorn how much would I handle very little and usually my, my, my desire to vindicate myself comes from the wrong reasons anyway and that's mixed with not even I don't, I'm not even rightfully should vindicate myself <clears throat> So before we follow Jesus' example, just remember that we're not Jesus and sometimes our desire to vindicate ourselves is a time when we should actually not vindicate ourselves. Just because you feel like you are right doesn't mean that you are. Now, Luther said, you don't have Jesus as an example if you don't first have him as gift. So before we go to consider, we, we marvel at Jesus, and that's what we, we rightly do now, at him displaying his, his strength in this way. But there's more that's going on and, this, and, and, and on this first side of, of shame-bearing is why the shame? What's going on here in all of this? So he's suffering much reproach, but what's going on? I think what's happening, and this is a place that we can see it, so we hear about it, but here's a place where it's happening. We can see it happening. Jesus is bearing the curse at this point. And here's, here's how I... Here's where I see that. It's a cluster of things that come together in these verses. So you'll have to work with me, right? First of all, the word crucified comes up a number of times in here. We have it in verse 26, 31, 35, 38, and 44. Matthew makes clear Jesus is crucified. Now, the thing about being crucified is that when you're crucified, you're hung on a pole. Jews know that cursed is the man who hangs on a pole. It happens in Esther. Haman is hung on a pole. It happens when Joshua uh, defeats the five kings as he's invading the land. He hangs them on a tree. They're cursed. It happens in 2 Samuel when the Gibeonites want to get vengeance on Saul's family. Hanging on a tree is cursed. Secondly, there's the crown of thorns, not an incidental feature. 
part of the curse in Genesis 3 was thorns and thistles. Here you have Jesus, as it were, wearing the curse on his head. Not only so, but just think about some of the words that are used and the ways to describe Jesus. He's stripped, he's beaten, he's led away, they divide his plunder. Jesus is the temple of the Jews. The temple is in ruins. People are passing by, wagging their heads and scorning. This is exactly what the prophets spoke about would happen to Israel. This is exile. This is the, the, the high point of the curse. You'll be out of the land. The temple will be destroyed and people will pass by and they will scorn and, they, and you will be a reproach among the people. And that's what's happening here. That's exactly what we see. That's Jesus. All of that is happening in Jesus. Jesus is bearing the curse. So Jesus comes and bears the curse. And as Paul says in Galatians, this is Paul's point in Galatians, that we were redeemed from the curse by Jesus becoming a curse for us. And, but why do we need that? Next I want to look now at the folly of sin. So you can see it most, the folly, most clearly with the chief priests. But we need to just zoom out. So while we're thinking about the curse, think about the bigger picture of what's happening in this scene. Right? Israel is under Roman rule. That's not a good thing. Right? So Israel's under Roman rule. <clears throat> and the reader knows from what Matthew's, we, we know from what Matthew's already told us that Jesus is really the king. Right? And Pilate has ordered the crucifixion of the king of Israel, and they hang him on the tree. He's cursed, defeated. So the nation of Israel, there they are with their king hanging on a tree under Roman rule. They couldn't be in a worse off situation. In reality, this is, the, this is like a super low point for Israel. Their temple, their real temple, is, is destroyed in front of them. Jesus. Their king is cursed. At a national level, this is awful. And, the, and we see the blindness and folly of sin that the very leaders are the ones mocking him. How absurd. It's their own defeat 
But this is what sin is like and this is what we as sinners do. And there's a, there's a danger here. Because what we'll be tempted to do is we'll be tempted to say, that's what they did, but I'm not sure that I'm a part of this. Now listen to these words from Jesus in chapter 23, verse 29 to 32. This will set us up for understanding how we are supposed to see ourselves in a passage like this. Because it can feel a bit like, this is great, we've seen, okay, right, the soldiers do this, the leaders do this, Jesus gets crucified, but what's going on and where am I in the picture? (coughs) Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, woe to you, this is chapter 23, verse 29 to 32, He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Here's why. You build tombs for the prophets, that's the old prophets of old, and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And look what Jesus says next. So you testify against yourselves by these very words that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus says the very act of you saying, oh, we would never have done that, is the evidence that that's exactly what you would have done. Because it's that level of pride and blindness at your own nature. And we really struggle with this. We need to pray for God's help to see this. You see, because the question is, if, if I was a soldier, if you were a soldier, where would you have been? Would you have stood up for him? If I was a leader of the Jews, what would you have done? If I was being crucified next to him, if I was passing by. But we see that sort of thing. We we actually see this all the time, don't we? And this part of the text is an invitation for us for a little bit of self-reflection. Where am I in this picture? How does this connect with me? And don't we find exactly that sort of... um, the way that that works, this dynamic of, I would never do that, and then you do, but you don't tell anybody that you did. Or we see it in popular culture where so-and-so spits on so-and-so and and then says that uh, it wasn't the real me. That, That wasn't, that's not my character. That's not who I am. Or we see it historically. I'm not, a, I'm not a, a, a historian who has a deep understanding of the Second World War, but as I understand it, many of the Germans who were involved in things that they, perhaps in years to come, were ashamed of, or that we might think, wow, I can't believe they did that, were prior to that time people who would not have thought to themselves, yes, I would do that sort of thing. You see, and there's a real danger there that we say, I can't believe that they did that. And you see, that thinking is not a 
That's not a new idea. Old theologians have put it like this. They've said, every lust, if, it's, if, it, if you give it space, it's, it's aiming to grow up into adultery. Every covetousness is aiming to grow up into oppression. Or Jesus said it like this. When you've lusted, you've already committed adultery. When you hate your brother, you're a murderer. And so it invites some reflection on our own hearts. Jesus is bearing the curse because we are full of sin and folly and the darkness of the picture that we have here and the tragedy as we see what's happening is a visual display of the tragedy of sin. It's absolutely horrific. We ought to weep and wail as the, as the Bible writers would call us to do. Weep and wail for our sinfulness. But as we come into land, we see that in the midst of all of this, we see Jesus bearing the curse for us because of our sinfulness. And surprisingly, the the irony of the whole thing, and this is where we see the wisdom of God displayed, is that God is actually working salvation in the midst of this. God is incredible. You know, Paul says in, in Corinthians, you know, we preach Christ crucified and it's a message of um, many people just think it's folly. To those who can't see, it's folly. But to us who have been saved, it's the power of God. Because we see that what's happening here, and this is where we're going to close on these verses, in verse 20, uh, <clears throat> what, they, what the elders and the passers-by say to Jesus. Look what they say. He saved others. This is verse 42. They said, but he can't save himself. Exactly. He's in the act of saving them right now. Look what it says next in verse 43. He trusts in God. Yeah, he does. That's why he's on the cross right now, not destroying you. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. And you see, in the background, in the background, we're going to go to Psalm 22. So turn to Psalm 22. You see, because Psalm 22, probably Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 are two psalms that um, are in the background of this whole section. We didn't have time to to look into the connections, but... You can read that for yourself later, particularly the first section um, up to verse 21 in Psalm 22. But you see, the thing is, Jesus knows verse 22. And so where they say he trusts in God, let God rescue him if he delights in him. In the wisdom of God, which they don't know, 
God is actually working salvation. And Jesus can see through the cross and he can see the joy that is before him at the resurrection and he can hear verse 22. So, sorry, let's do verse 21 just to set it up. The final word there in verse 21 is of the lament. Rescue me, this is Psalm 22 verse 21, rescue me from the mouth of the lion, save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then verse 22, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly, I will praise you. Jesus knows there's a resurrection at the end of this. I'm bearing the shame now, but there's, this is working salvation. I'm bearing the curse for other people that they might be saved. I'm taking their places, we've learnt, and I'm heading towards a resurrection. And everything that you've said here, he saved others, that's what I'm doing right now. He trusts in God, yes, that's what I'm doing right now. And on resurrection day... Jesus will be vindicated and it will be seen God delights in him and he has worked salvation for us. So what do we do? I think we marvel at Jesus. I think as we look at him and see him bearing the reproach, I think we take that as an example. Peter does that. He says, Jesus was an example for you. But first we receive him as a gift. We receive him as somebody who redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. We receive him as him taking our place. And we marvel at the wisdom of God. That in the midst of all this, in the, in, the, in the depths of our sin and our depravity, our blindness, our folly, in his marvelous, strange, surprising wisdom, he has worked salvation. And we look forward to the resurrection. Where God vindicated him, where in the future... We will be found in him. And as we wait, we continue to live for him. I'm going to pray. And then we'll sing some songs. Jesus, we give you thanks. For the way that you loved us. We thank you that you didn't get down off the cross. We thank you that you bore the shame. 